welcome to Systematically. We are still on our apocalypse trip here. Um, we're social distancing, we're washing our hands, we're not touching our face, and we're recording podcasts. So uh, we're glad you're listening. We hope you're doing all right. I have uh, an exciting guest for us today. I've got a friend of the show and previous guest, Ann Carpenter. Hi, Ann. Hey. Um, she is joining us to talk about uh, Hansers von Balthasar's Theodrama 4, and specifically the section at the beginning of that where uh, Balthasar considers uh, the Apocalypse of John, Book of Revelation. So um, hopefully you've already listened to our episode with Eric Van and Eichel, where he talks about it from a, a biblical studies perspective. There's a whole bunch of interesting stuff there about apocalyptic lit- literature in general and about Revelation in particular. We're going to obviously come at it from a different perspective here and now. Um, and we're also going to do a little contextualizing about theodrama. And uh, we'll probably talk about Wandel a lot, which I'm pretty amped about. But first, um, I am, so I, I'm teaching at St. Edwards right now. And we just heard from them that we're going to have an extra week of spring break, whatever that means under these circumstances. And then we will be online teaching for the duration of the semester. Um, but and y'all have y'all have not. Uh, oh no, we have. Brought, we have not already? spring. We have not sprung break. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not yet. But not yet. No, that's during Holy Week for us. Uh, so our semester starts later, but we're going to be online for the rest of the term. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how are you navigating that? Uh, mediocrely. <laughs> yeah. And by what yeah. means? Uh, we've been, so I, I do a fair amount of through Turnitin. So, so I make them, I already make them do a weekly Turnitin assignment. I haven't added to that. It's just a, like a, it's like a reading check, basically. Um, and I have a lot of handouts through. We use Moodle. So what's really different is using Zoom for a kind of live class. Yeah. That I do. And I've modified my, my own note-taking skills so that I we we all are at our computers and we're all kind of writing the notes together. Mm. As are I'm you like doing that on a on a shared document? Yeah. Yeah, cool. I share. Yeah. That's a good idea. Um, so I do shared screen and we all take our notes. I upload them when we're done. And that's been going well information wise. It doesn't really encourage conversation. And sure. it, we sort of sprint through things much faster than if I were doing it live with them in person. Yeah. So I I think I'm gonna I figured out that YouTube works on Zoom. So I think we're going to watch some history lessons about um, La Belle Epoque and cool. pre-World War One France. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's, that's the, the note, shared note-taking idea is really good. I have, uh, I have sufficient trepidation about the idea of getting 26 students into a Zoom room or whatever these things are called uh, that I'm uh, obviously have mm-hmm. my like, podcast studio set up in my closet so i'm just gonna like sequester myself in here and record uh, 
uh, basically I'm going to produce in addition to doing this until I don't want to anymore. Um, I think I'm going to produce, what will it be? Four 75 minute podcasts a week, essentially. (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, so two, I have, I have two courses, three sections of one of them. Um, and then so for, yeah, for each class I'll record basically the equivalent of our classroom time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I haven't developed a more elaborate way of taking attendance than I can, I can see if they've downloaded it. Yeah. Um, so I may, I, you know, there's probably some way to like stream it and see how far into it they get and do analytics and stuff like that. But, um, this is, these are crisis circumstances and frankly, uh, I'm not getting hazard pay, so. <laughs> I, I think any learning that does happen in the rest of the semester will be a small miracle. Yeah, that's right. God, uh, God, God's here helping us uh, mm-hmm. learn, learn what we can. Yeah. Um, well, that's wild. Yeah, we'll see how, we'll see how it all goes. Um, and then, you know, there's the, the like, I was talking very briefly on Twitter about this, but like, I, you know, people invoke like spiritual or spirituality in this kind of woo-woo way. And they mean a kind of narrow set of practices, right? Um, But I think a lot of us are discovering, I'm just, I'll speak for myself. I'm discovering that like uh, social distancing, quote unquote, is imposing um, quite a significant spiritual task on me. that's cognitive and volitional and affective um, and like uh, psychic, right? There's all these images floating around that I'm having to like integrate or block or like set at a distance. And um, it, it's quite a thing. Yeah, I think we're all, all to kind of to like Baltazarize Lonergan a bit. We're all. Which is my favorite ex- trick that you do. <laughs> We're we're all dealing with the ecstasis of self transcendence, which is made much more obvious, I think, in solitude. Yeah, by our Precisely limitation. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <clears throat> in this case, spatial. Yeah, that's a that's a thing that uh, I put on Twitter today too. That I'm looking for somebody uh, to come to come and talk about um, the the history of the history and also the theology of. Uh, of choosing isolation as a as a Christian practice. Um, yeah, there's a there's, really good, a good, really good book by Jean Leclerc called "Alone with God." Hmm. I shall I shall go find it. I shall hopefully like, find a PDF to, of it. Just so we're all clear, like this is a tough task for us, precisely because as far as the rule of Benedict is concerned. Only the advanced people get to be alone by themselves. Right. Oh, exactly. Um, no, that's ex- I think that's exactly right. Um, mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, uh, I many descriptors could be applied to me, but I don't know that it spiritually advanced is necessarily one of them. <laughs> uh, same. Uh, yeah, right. Perpetual beginner. Yeah. Right. Always, always starting. Well, mm-hmm. cool. Let's, um, let's turn to Balthazar here. So for those, we do a, a lot of Lonergan here, but there's other 20th century uh, Jesuits and former Jesuits that uh, are sort of broadly on our horizon. And Balthazar can be one of them uh, now and again. But for folks, 
just the briefest little bio uh, about who he was and sort of where he fit in that scene in the 20th century? Yeah, so um, Balthazar was born in Switzerland in 1905, um, came from a multilingual family that um, was fairly cultured in the European sense. And his first interest was art and culture. He actually got his doctorate in uh, Germanistics, which is like a cross between a, liter- a literature degree and a philosophy degree. And he never got another doctorate that like remained his advanced degree. He got licentiates in theology and philosophy when he went into the Jesuits, but his background is sort of always this unusual literary philosophical way of looking at the world. And so he, once he finishes his studies and then World War II ends, um, <laughs> both of which are necessary, uh, <laughs> he, he gets offered a position and I think the, I think the, Gregorian, um, but he refused it, and he went back to Switzerland to be basically a university chaplain because that had in, that had changed his life forever, mm. and he wanted to do that. And uh, it, it's a long, circuitous route, but he spends the rest of his career really, although he's in dialogue with everybody, he reads everybody. He's really on the outside of of the conversation, doing his own thing. Um, and so his project, his central project, the trilogy, is really Balthazar doing a theology that puts together the basic pieces of the Christian tradition in a way that makes sense to his own his own training and interest. And so it's an unusual project. It's not a systematic theology. Um, it's not like Rahner is amazing. He wrote about every topic, I think, that you could possibly <laughs> think of. And uh, Balthazar didn't. He yeah. asked really specific questions. And the trilogy, um, the, the pretty standard like boilerplate take on it is each of the, tri- each of the panels of the triptych is governed by a different um, transcendental of uh-huh. being. So you've got Glory of the Lord, which is governed by the beautiful. You've got Theodrama, which is governed by the good. And you've got Theologic, which is governed by the true. Um, so this trilogy that, is, is, yes. is three books, right? Just three books? No, 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 no. no. Oh, it's, no? Is that not correct? It's three panels. Oh, okay. What does that so, mean? Yeah. So Glory of the Lord has seven books. Theodrama has, well, seven in the English. Um, Theodrama has five. And Theologic has three. So he wrote a little bit. Uh, a lot, yeah. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. I'm really grateful he did not have uh, computers. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so yeah, no, it's 
it's a lot of writing and the transcendental things really only help to when you know faculty psychology just enough to know that each of the transcendentals is associated with sort of different anthrop anthropological locations and that's really what Balthazar is trying to work out is a theology that responds to a theological anthropology mm -hmm. that he's got running um and so for example theodrama which we're looking at today it's governed by the good and, and the good is associated with with willing so he has a lot of reflections on the nature of freedom and not just the nature of freedom but how people use it in history and how we can understand that theologically which he uses the analogy of the stage to primarily work that hermeneutical task out. Mm -hmm. So he's got the metaphysics, which is always operating in a broadly Thomist way underneath. Um, but when he has to ask hermeneutical questions, he brings up stage. Mm. So the, the prologue that no one reads to Theodrama is really important because it's, he runs through a history of theater. No one but and, Charlie Gillespie. Yep, no one but Charlie Gillespie. Yeah. <laughs> who's who's uh, got a dissertation on, on that yes. particular volume. Um, so it's a lovely dissertation. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, and 20-year-old me, I read it and understood. <laughs> That's the so, nature of reading things when you're 20. I was excited, yeah. yeah <laughs> but, totally. <laughs> I want to before we before we focus on uh, on Theodrama and on this volume in particular. Uh, I keep putting my hand on it, like and it, you can hear it. Maybe that um, I kind of want to ask a weird counterfactual question, uh, which has just nothing to do with what we're going to talk about. But I'm uh, suddenly interested in it. So, uh, so you know, Lonergan was big into Plato and Newman, and then. The, and then he his doctoral studies he gets directed to Thomas and spends time studying Thomas there. But then continues with Thomas because of the demands of seminary teaching. First um, at Immaculate Conception in uh, Quebec, and then uh, later when they they send him off to to Rome to the Gregorian. And I can't, I can't help but wonder like how how might have Balthazar's if not his project, at least maybe his procedure might have changed if a big chunk of his time had been consumed not with university chaplaincy, but with having to teach within the strictures of, um, you know, the, the manualist tradition and seminaries uh, between the, the war and Vatican II. Um, I mean, who knows, right? But I just kind of, all, yeah. so the flight of fancy to run the parallels. Well, the closest we get to that is he has got a commentary on the spiritual gifts in the Summa. Uh, and I imagine we would have seen more of that and more sort of pushing, pushing Thomism into areas that it's got, but that he's more interested in. Yeah. So thing, things like that. So we would have seen a kind of, my guess is a kind of recovery of the charismatic Thomas Aquinas. Oh, that, wow. It's, that makes me a little sad that we don't have that, right? actually. <laughs> um, I mean, arguably, that, that's the book Prayer, but mm, that's sure. my take. No, I like that. I like that take. Anyway, Flight of Fancy over. Mm. 
Okay, so so you talked a little bit about the the prologue to Theodrama. We're sort of setting that uh, stage, and um, the so so the the volume I'm most familiar with, and that I wanted to talk to you about, is volume four, titled "The Action." Um, can you tell us a little bit of sort of the the broad strokes of the volume itself, and then we'll talk about this part at the beginning about the about the apocalypse of John, about Revelation. Yeah. So up until this point, Balthazar's been um, literally setting the stage um, with concepts that he's going to then deploy. And so Theodrama 4 really is the first time that you get to see the Theodramatic method operating on the, the data of revelation, uh, by, by which I mean the revelation of, of, of Christ. Um, and so that's where we first get a full bore soteriology as opposed to concepts that would help with soteriology. Sure. And that's really what theodrama is dedicated to is the sort of predicament of human history and human solidarity and God's response to the predicament. Hmm. Um, is there, so, so somewhat famously in glory of the Lord, there's that dichotomy of, uh, aesthetic theology and theological aesthetics. Um, is there a, a corresponding dichotomy in, in theodrama, like distinguishing a dramatic theology from a theodramatics? Um, yeah, he's, uh, he talks in Theodrama 2 about, and I'm not going to remember it well enough, about basically uh, lyricism and epic, hmm. which are both both kinds of drama that reduce, basically they reduce down the human situation to a kind of resolution in one of two directions, lyric or epic. And I can't remember which is which right now. (laughs) I have a terrible time with those pairs like that. I find just mnemonically impossible. I'm always switching them and (laughs) I have a heck of a time. Yeah. So he's got a similar, basically he, he, he wants to, what he means by drama is a play of freedoms. He says that in Theodrama too. And so if you're going to either vitiate freedom or and by freedom it's either infinite freedom or or contingent freedom or if you resolve their interplay you've violated the basic rule of the theodramatics mm. yeah interesting um okay so, so all right so so we've got this 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 consideration of soteriology and uh and also of the human will and the good, and so between them, uh, human liberty, mm-hmm. uh, freedoms. Um, so then, and, and when and when we're getting to volume four, we're getting to kind of the meat of the theological business. Finally, uh, after pages and pages and pages. Um, and so then, as I open the text here for the, the sound of pages turning, um, he opens. He names the first part. I'm, having trouble right part one here is 
under the sign of the apocalypse. And then he jumps into part A of part one, the book of Revelation outline. Um, what, I, when I first read this, um, I, was a, I, was, I was starting to get the hang of Lonergan. And I had done a, a fair bit of training in like kind of continentally existentialism and phenomenology and stuff like that. Uh, and so I started reading these opening pages of this book and I was just like, what is going on? <laughs> what is happening? I did very little training in biblical studies. I'd had uh, only slightly more theological training, but not, also not that much. Um, and I was like at sea. And then finally, you know, we get to the pathos of the world stage bit that follows it. I was like, oh, thank God, some like German philosopher. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> So help, uh, you know, I don't know, 25-year-old me or whoever was reading this. Um, like, what is this deep end of the pool that we get thrown into here? Uh, we're, we're looking at the book of Revelation. We're looking at John's apocalypse. Yeah, so he's got, I, I, I made a couple of notes about some things that he establishes using this. Uh, so I made sure to remember them. Um, so. First, I'll say the kinds of topics that he covers, and then I'll say what I think he's doing with them. Awesome. Thanks. Okay. So one of the first things that he does is he establishes the relationship between Old Testament and New Testament images that the Apocalypse, the apocalypse of John has. And it's a complicated relationship. It's kind of the opposite of the book of Hebrews, which is sort of like, well, all that's been fulfilled and over. Um, they're still Balthazar, the Old Testament images are still, Balthazar will say, active and fruitful in the Apocalypse of John, even though there's also a, a still a kind of succession of New Testament ideas that's happening too. So that's one of the things that he discusses. He also discusses how time has this vertical dimension, this so the present moment has this openness right now to absolute to god's absolute time god's absolute being um and so that opens up this kind of cosmological world of the apocalypse where the kingdom of heaven is on the one hand uh he'll say present and on the other hand it's it's it erupting into the world, which produces conflict. And that conflict then characterizes Christian action as struggle. And so that's sort of the main, main ideas in the reflection on Revelation. And he's using that to do, I'll say two things. One is to complexify our understanding of time as something more than chronological, mm -hmm. um, which, is, which is very Blondellian to do. We'll, we'll see eventually. Um, but the other, the other is to play out this theme that he's had throughout the theodrama, which is what he calls the law of dramatic heightening. The more that God reveals himself, the more the world resists, 
And the Christian is in the middle of that, not on the other side. And and the world here, he he says in, in these early passages, he's the sort of primary valence of that word is the, the Johannine one. Mm-hmm. Right. So so it, it's it's not uh it's even not, the, it's not cosmos. It's like Right, it's not co- yeah, it's it's a the, a kind of theological notion of the world rather than some kind of like physical or metaphysical notion of the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, sorry, I interrupted your train there, but we're, you were, um, you were talking about time yeah, and, interrupt, well, and, it, and struggle. So, yeah. yeah, so this sets the stage for not just Jesus's struggle, but the struggle of the Christian. And Balthazar fundamentally wants to point out that we're not on the other side of that struggle. It's actually opened up by the appearance of Christ. Um, And that lays the groundwork then for a kind of philosophical reflection that follows um, the the pathos of the world stage, he calls Mm -hmm. it. I'm really interested in that, in that notion that, um, and another thing that he makes quite clear is that in in the book of revelation in in the apocalypse of john the 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 victory of the lamb who has been slain the victory of christ is not the thing that resolves this yeah. struggle or conflict uh it's the sort of the sort of slainness of the lamb might tip you to that um mm-hmm. but but it is it is that that even in the sort of uh, the kind of eschatological key of the thing, uh, the the triumph, the the victory that God in Christ is going to have affected is not the thing that resolves the conflict, not the thing that that uh, settles the struggle. It's the thing that initiates it, mm-hmm. um, and that is uh, <laughs> that that's I think a, a hard. Uh, a hard thing to get your head around initially, because I, I think there's a um, there's a much more how to put it. There's a kind of flat-footed way of thinking narratively about the Christian story, mm-hmm. right? That is um, about eschatology as um, wrapping things up, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, fin- fin- finishing. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's not, that's not wrong, but, but in a flat footed mode, it does seem like, um, the victory is the sensation of the conflict, not its initiation. So what does he mean? So like, what could he mean to say that the victory of the, the lamb who has been slain is the thing that initiates this, the, the conflict that is integral to Christian living? Yeah. So The resurrection is the total unveiling of Christ as God. And so human freedom is then chased, is then um, faced with a choice for or against God. And that provocation um, not only 
provokes the possibility of graced agreement, but provokes the possibility of resistance. And I think Balthazar is in a certain way, even though he also means this, he also just means this seems to be the data of revelation. Um, but I, I think in a certain way, he's trying to take seriously that human decision is, is not over not in the Christian and, and not in humanity writ large. Um, and, and God now nakedly provokes decision, I think. You know, we were talking before the mics heated up about, uh, I, I mentioned I mentioned Ignacio de Correa, and, and he has a really interesting, in his uh, chapter from that, the old, um, old liberation theology book, The Crucified People, Mm-hmm. Um, he starts that with the question, okay, if God's saving work is affected in Christ crucified and resurrected, then like, look around, right? Where is it? Mm-hmm. Right? Where is the salvation effective? Um, and I, I think that's actually a really, um, it's a really challenging question. Um, there's a, uh, I have a kind of observation that says it in a different way, right? I may, maybe people on the podcast have heard me say it before, right? That, that um, one of the most challenging Christian claims is that things should be worse than they are, right? <laughs> right? God's salvific work is like, is, is, is here, right? The kingdom mm-hmm. of God is at hand um, and it's at work in history and it's going. Um, and you look around and you go, Oh, <laughs> maybe oh. I didn't. Maybe I didn't understand what this was supposed to mean. Um, I mean, the other option too, as I always like to say, is uh, is that God is an asshole. Um, that is our other option. That's yes. like seems to me the other option. I I think metaphysically, there's trouble just saying there isn't a God, and there's moral problems with that too. Evil suddenly seems to kind of float away. Um, but uh, not not metaphysically, but I mean, sort of. Uh, definitionally right sure um but yeah it could it could be that god's just an asshole i mean that's one that's a live option um but if we're committed if we're committed in faith to uh to relating to god on the assumption that he's not um then yeah we, there's some there's some sort of uh, rethinking <laughs> that needs mm-hmm. to be done and a korea asked that question i think it's a it's a good question and it's a question that um he answers in a very different way um within a different conversation, a different historical moment. Um, but it does seem to be one that sort of, you know, Balthazar is asking here as well. Is, yeah, I think that's a good take. Yeah. Um, is that, okay, so if, if, if God's salvific work has been affected in the resurrected Christ, um, what, you know, where is it in the, in the world that unfolds beyond that? Um, so, so, uh, in his in his sort of excursus on revelation where is it where where is that work um at play where is it at stake what what where, where is this stage and what is the drama that tri- that goes across it well the stage is human history uh, not to be not to totally kill your excitement the stage is nothing <laughs> less than <laughs> human history um and i forget your second i want so uh, and what the draw and i was asking what the drama is that goes uh, across the, the stage of human history um 
I part 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 of me really wants to ask you a mean question, which is uh, human, hist- human history. What's that? <laughs> this is a this is a, a, a an inside joke because um, yes, that is a, a a question that has been animating Anne's uh, current work quite a lot. Um, a book, I I hope and pray. Yeah, I hope and pray too. Mm. Um, uh, so yeah, so what's the drama? You, what is the drama of yeah. human history? Well, technically, all of human action taken together. But Balthazar uses a kind of a kind of personalism to talk about it in terms, primarily in terms of the individual person, a confrontation between the individual and the Christ who's nearer to me than I am to myself. Mm. I mean, that seems, on the one hand, that seems like plainly right. Um, but then also, how, how, how is that experienced or how concretized is maybe a better word, right? So if, if there's this sort of fundamental choice for or against God, um, this relation of freedom between mine um, and the Christ who is nearer to me than I am to myself. Uh, what is the, what's the sort of character of that, of that choice? What's it, um, what's it going to mean? Um, it's going to mean, well, struggle in one of two directions. One, just the struggle of sin that she talks about in the next section. Mm-hmm. But also the struggle to, uh, as as Blondell says, not just do the right thing, but do the right thing rightly. Mm. And and I think uh, the other thing too that that makes um, so so let's use Blondell, and we can find our way back to Balthazar through Blondell. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> so I, to be honest, I don't entirely know where you want me to go. No, it's okay. I, well, I'm just what I'm trying to do is. Um, there is a there's a gap between the the sort of literary uh, excursus that Balthazar gives, um, and then there's a sort of set of there's like a set of metaphysical tools you can use also right, to, to talk about the same set of questions. And there's like there's like a little gap between them because um, the the way that Balthazar is reading the Book of Revelation here is plainly theological. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so it's, and so not in the modality of time that we are doing, uh, that we are sort of most obviously doing our living in, though our living is caught up in this other modality of time. Uh, and, you know, but, and you can, and you can, if, and if you find that d- troubling in some way or kind of loosey goosey, if you're of a particular intellectual bent, right, you can switch to metaphysics <laughs> and, right, you can talk about the will having a kind of fundamental, um, a kind of fundamental decision for or against God, but the will always wills uh, in light of a word. And so you need the revelation, you know, so you need the full speaking of the word and you can kind of do your um, faculty psychology analysis, of the same thing and do it all um, synchronically, right? Do it all kind of in, in mm-hmm. the atemporal mode of theory. Which is your chapter four or five. I, forget I think it's four. Yeah. In my okay. dissertation. Um, I just finished. It was fantastic. 
<laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm uh, I, I'm sort of slowly chopping them into bits and rereading them uh, in hopes of it one day being a book that people can read without me having to just email them a PDF. Um, but anyway, that's a that's a a thing for another day. And so between these, Blondell's a kind of nice, um, a, a kind of nice mediating figure because he's concerned with the concrete. He's doing a kind of phenomenology. At the same time, it's it's not an immunitizing phenomenology, even if it is a phenomenology of the infant, right? So it keeps its focus on the human insofar as it's human. Um, and, and for him, then, it's sort of the analysis culminates in this realization that the meaning of my action and its concreteness is, on the one hand, all of the meanings that are available phenomenally. Right, all the various horizons of action he considers, right? The sort of interiority of my action, the interpersonal nexus of my action, um, even the kind of like worldly morals, the kind of uh, my action as a kind of contribution to the moral universe, um, mm-hmm. which I think is often largely how Lonergan will think about morality, for example, right? Is um, that the that you ought to think of your actions sort of um, being a contribution to emergent probability. Uh, not exclusively that Lonergan has more theological things to say about it, but that's kind of the main insight driving a lot of it. In any case, for Blondell, the culminating realization is when I act, when I will, I will with my will, but because uh, my, uh, to use Kierkegaard's line, because my self and so my will rests transparently on a power that establishes it, I also will with God's will. Okay. And so to fail to do what's right and to do it rightly um, is to make a monstrosity of God's will acting in my will. Um, and that's, that's, so notice how that immediately introduces further trouble in human history that's going to constitute, constitute a struggle for me and my community. Say more because about that. A, well, because I've failed to do the good. I mean, Lonergan will say this. It's it's a kind of uh, a kind of nonsense that I introduce into the world that yeah. doesn't that doesn't have meaning. And so I'm faced not only with a world that I have to struggle to make meaningful, but also with a world that has a whole lot of non-meaning in it. Yeah, and. Baltazar will say that even though all human meaning is relative, we constantly try and describe it with the absolute. We want, a, we want permanent meaning. And so the struggle is always in these two directions toward meaning, but also the surge of sin, the surge of suffering, in fact, uh, of evil, all of which Baltazar covers in the, the sections that follow. So let me, so then, um... The, so on one level, then, if I, if I sort of switch back to the, to the apocalypse, right? On, on one level, well, let's use, so since we're talking about time, let's use recur, right? Um, yeah. Recur in time and narrative talks about sort of our temporality as being, he uses Augustine, right? That, that mm-hmm. our experience of, of temporality is um, a kind of, it's, a, it's an intense here, right? It's kind of holding together into something that's uh, as beginning, middles, and ends and all that kind of stuff. Um, but because it 
has these sort of various parts, right? It's not a sort of pure unity. It's also has a distensio, a distension. It's stretched across um, these time periods. And, um, but one of the things that, uh, one of the things that Kerr will do with that is he'll talk about muthos, um, about sort of narration as making holes um, out of human action. And these are all kind of provisional holes and, and the, the, you know, the volumes of that, that series of books all kind of deal with it in different ways in history and fiction and blah, blah, blah. But um, I think there's one way of thinking about uh, the relationship between the theological temporality of the apocalypse and the sort of concrete temporality of human action um, as the meaning of my action uh, exists within something that in that sort of theological temporality is complete, right? The work of God is done. Um, and yet, uh, because the work of God, um, God to switch into metaphysical key, right? Because God's ad extra agency is in this theological time or is in eternity or, you know, whatever. We can work the nuances of that out in the pages of a scholarly journal. But um, because of that relation to the sort of concrete temporality of, of my action, it means that I am, uh, I am engaging in the, the drama of deciding whether my action will contribute to the intelligibility of this completeness of this whole, um, or not. Uh, and so, and so, you know, it's, it's to choose whether or not I will participate in the, um, in the narrative, right. In the muthos of God. Mm -hmm. um or whether i'm going to make it or i'm going to inject stuff that doesn't make any sense into it um, yeah and i want and it um, and i want to say for baltazar unless i have that theological perspective i'm not going to really be able to posit any kind of wholeness i think that's not, right not without not without lying to myself anyway yeah i mean that's blondell's point right um, Blondell's point is you can sort of never close, you can never close the loop on the analysis in purely imminent terms. That's why the supernatural, which, which I, I'm always saying this, so apologies if you're tired of hearing me say it. Um, but for him, right, the supernatural as a technical term doesn't just mean grace. It means all divine ad extra agency. Um, and so without that as a, as a, at least a heuristic term in philosophy, in the kind of modern mode of philosophy, you just can't. You can't ever close the loop of analysis. You can't ever mm -hmm. make it into a whole. Um, and lots of 20th century, you know, French existentialism goes exactly mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Sartre and Camus, and um, uh, I want to have somebody who teaches the plague come on and talk about that too. Uh, that's another thing I want to do. Um, I haven't found I haven't found quite the right person yet. Maybe uh, maybe if I can't find somebody, we'll just put a panel together of people who like me who've like done it once. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, that's Blondell's point is you can't do that. So, so, and yeah. that's a good, that's a good entryway too. So then what does he do if he, when he comes out of, and we'll wrap it up here because we're, we're going, we're going pretty good here. Um, he comes out of this treatment of the apocalypse of John and he moves into the pathos of the world stage. So what, 
what is this transition and what is he doing in that subsequent section? Yeah, so um, Balthazar has established the way that being a human being is in the language of, of, of apocalypsis struggle, but in a more formal sense, uh, continual crisis of, of, of decisions. Um, and so Balthazar um, keeps that running because there's a certain transparency that what he's about to do has in view of revelation. But he starts off actually prescinding from revelation and just looking at human action by itself and how it's on the one hand given and aware that it's given. I didn't I didn't take it. It's just the sort of is. Um, and on, on the other hand needs to be achieved. And that faced with this paradox of myself that I have this freedom that's given and needs to be achieved. Um, I, my best option is a kind of fidelity without answers, is a kind of antigone, mm -hmm. fidelity that perhaps posits a transcendent, but really only has itself to go by. Um, and it's into that pathos that God himself steps and takes on as, as a sort of fate, um, mm. in Christ. Right. And so, and so there is a kind of, um, there, there, there is a kind of analysis of human, the sort of the human considered in its uh, sort of in its own, I, I, I hesitate to use the word integrity, right? Because that's precisely what's lacking. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, let's see, says, uh, e even if Oedipus can, can figure out the riddle of the Sphinx, I'm still faced with the Sphinx in the mirror. Yeah. My, myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and and so you get a kind of analysis of of the of the question the question we are to ourselves right and and the allusion there to Heidegger is um, both not a mistake and also present in the footnotes, mm -hmm. um, and but uh, yeah and then like it's a funny kind of question though because it's a question that almost can't even function as a heuristic of an answer. Um, at most, he says at most it can sort of gesture right. Um, he gives, he, he sort of, he sort of grudgingly gives that much to Kierkegaard, which I think is a little unfair, but still. <laughs> um, no, I, I think he's got this, he lived through two world wars. He's got this grim, I don't want to say pessimism, but a sort of, this firm, grim opinion that human beings cannot give ultimate meaning to themselves. That's either monstrous or, or impossible. And 
So my existence in a dumb universe, I'll say, right, <laughs> is, is truly puzzling to me. I mean, look at, look at how much we struggle in our present moment to imagine the common good, even though it's so concrete for us right now. Mm-hmm. It's so concrete. It's still so hard. Calorically demanding, as I keep saying. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, totally. And, um, and, it's, and it's, it's notable, too, that he's writing these things um, in a moment when secular atheistic philosophy in on the continent is in having an anti-humanist moment mm-hmm. um and i and I, I sort of had this realization three four weeks ago like oh it's it's really interesting that uh when when europe is having its anti-humanist moment finally catholics are like hey you know what we're gonna do humanism come humanism. on in come on in the humanist water's fine um <laughs> and actually i think it's like i, I i'm i uh I think it is a, a sign and mark of God's grace, right? That that a, a church that resisted, resisted, resisted humanism for so long, um, in the moment when a, a, a certain portion, a certain sort of part of um, world cultural life needed some humanism, the church was like, "Okay, fine, fine, we'll okay, do some humanism right. now. Let's do this. Let's go full in this. Yeah. We're ready now. Yeah. It only it only took us 150 years, but we're in." Um, <laughs> Which is like the most Catholic church thing ever, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> All right. It's been a century and a half. We're good. We're ready to go. We're we've we've adequately yeah. prepared. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's maybe, that's maybe as good a place as any to, to call it a day. Unless, uh, is there something about this uh, that you wish I had asked you that you wanted to make sure you got in um, before we wrap it up? Um, I think... All I might want to add is uh, I think Balthazar's reflections on power and the his category of the the demonic use of power is a really helpful borrowing from apocalyptic literature that tries to explain what happens when when Christians grab power Mm. and keep it for themselves yeah 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 and there's a yeah there's a conversation to be had with ignacio acre on that point too Uh uh-huh um yeah that's really interesting um i i was (laughs) i had the i had the privilege of uh uh Bobby Chesney, who is the host, uh, one of the two hosts of the National Security Law Podcast, which is a podcast I listen to because I'm a nerd. Um, and he's here in Austin. He teaches at UT. And before uh, all the social distancing, he had mentioned on that that he was going to read uh, A Canticle for Leibowitz, which is like one of my favorite novels, which, by the way, everyone yeah. should read, like, like yeah, get a I'm, copy. I'm halfway, I'm halfway through it. It's, it's a trip, especially if you know anything about like me- medieval monasticism and stuff. You got to. You got to get your hands on it. Uh, but he mentioned he was, he was reading it. And so I sent him a little email and said, hey, you know, this intersects with some stuff that I study. And we'd met once or twice before. And so uh, we both finished it and then and got coffee. And uh, I, was ex- <laughs> I, was, I was explaining uh, integralism to him, mm-hmm. uh, which is a really funny thing to have had to do. So I was like, all right, so at the end of the 19th century in France. And, uh, but at one point, I, was, I described the sort of... Uh, Christian clamor for naked power 
uh, as demonic in precisely this sense. And he totally, totally misunderstood what I meant and like got really uncomfortable really fast. <laughs> I was like, oh, I was like, oh no, I don't, I don't mean they're like, it's not the exorcist, man. I just forget it. It's okay. Well, different coffee. It's, we'll, a, it's a, it's an aping of Christ. You it's know. a whole thing. Uh, here, I've got, I've, I've got this book by the Swiss guy you should read. <laughs> That's me every day. Yeah, exactly. Well, awesome. Well, and thank great. you so much. Um, this is thank great. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, okay. So, uh, as always, you can find us on Twitter at SystematicPod. You can send us an email. Uh, if you want to send us your diatribe defending integralism, uh, you can send that to systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. I promise to delete it immediately. Uh, we are intro and outro music is ghost uh, from ghost two by nine inch nails. It's track 14. And, uh, I think I, Oh, and we still have a Patreon. If you want to donate, that would be awesome. I know we were kind of offline for a while. People who kept donating, you're the best. Um, we really appreciate it. Have a little bit of overhead that helps with it. So, uh, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Stand six feet away from strangers and be attentive.